Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to, where are we, episode 11 of Politics as Usual. This week we talk to John Alderdice, also known to his friends as Lord Alderdice, who was the first speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly between 1998 and 2004. John was a pivotal figure during that tense period of trying to find peace in Northern Ireland during the 1990s. He was leader of the Alliance Party between 1987 and 1998, and the Alliance Party was the most moderate and non-sectarian of the Unionist parties. Uh, And in that role, he did much to encourage talks with Sinn Féin at a time when many on the Unionist side were still resistant to the idea. As you'll hear, we talk at some length about what it's like being on the inside of the politics of Northern Ireland during that period, partly because it was obviously a hugely significant period, but we also talked about what it was like growing up in Northern Ireland during the 1970s and 1980s when the violence was at its worst, Uh, John grew up in a family where his father was a Presbyterian preacher and he talks about that upbringing and how during that period the conflict formed a permanent backdrop and was a constant feature of daily life and how both of those things, both that family life and that experience, inevitably shape you and your approach to politics. John is in many ways an unusual politician, uh, not least because he originally trained as a psychiatrist and continued his practice as a clinical psychotherapist until as recently as 2010. Uh, At this point, I'll let you insert your own joke about the need for more psychotherapy in politics. But this background means that John has a distinct and very interesting take on politics and specifically what motivates politicians and how... Understanding the factors that drive certain political opinions and beliefs initially and how they then manifest themselves in political activity lies at the heart of then trying to find solutions in deeply divided societies. It is genuinely fascinating. And it's this approach, this background, this experience, combined with his direct experience of trying to implement a meaningful political settlement in Northern Ireland that has shaped much of his activity over the last decade and a half in his international work through his Centre for the Resolution of Intractable Conflicts, his work at the Centre for Democracy and Peacebuilding, and his role as Chair of the World Federation of Scientists' Permanent Monitoring Panel on Motivations for Terrorism, he's been directly involved in attempts to bring order and peace in some of the world's most complex and divided political environments. As you can probably already tell, this is all worth listening to, and I hope you very much enjoy it. So, to start with, thank you very much for agreeing to do it. Um, you were obviously the, the first speaker of uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly when it was created and uh, a critical part of the negotiations leading up to the Good Friday Agreement and the resultant Northern Ireland Assembly. What was your expectation when you became speaker in the first instance about how this was all going to work? And did it, did it meet those expectations? My initial expectation was that I probably would only be there for about 15 minutes because the way it was set up was that uh, instead of, um, as it would be in the House of Commons, uh, the oldest member in the chamber taking the the chair uh, and then having a vote on the speaker, uh, since the Assembly hadn't met before, it was a completely new uh, uh, Assembly or Parliamentary Assembly, Uh, it was decided that an initial presiding officer would be appointed by the Secretary of State on the advice if they wish to take it of the Prime Minister. Um, And and that person would then conduct the business um, and the first expected business would be the election of a Speaker. Mm. Um, However, not entirely surprisingly, um, the Assembly didn't agree on a new Speaker And so I continued on as the initial presiding officer for a very long time. In fact, probably for longer than any of the other office holders in that assembly. Um, And and I was never actually voted in as speaker. Um, The only vote really, as, as I recall, was that at one point I had been perhaps a little more helpful to David Trimble in a difficult spot than the DUP liked and appreciated. 
And so they decided to uh, have a vote of no confidence in me as Speaker. So Dr Paisley came along to make arrangements for the vote of no confidence and said, but of course, Mr Speaker, you need to be in the chair. And I said, I can't be in the chair in a vote of no confidence against myself. And he said, no, no, but nobody else could do it. I said, no, no, no. Uh, look, I'll make arrangements for one of the deputy speakers to do it. Don't, it'll all be perfectly orderly and, and proper, but, but there's no way that I can do it. So for the only occasion during that assembly uh, that I, I took a seat in the chamber, I went and sat down at the back of the assembly chamber for the motion of no confidence in myself. And Peter Robinson, as the um, uh, leading spokesman for the DUP, um, stood up. He and I had fought against each other in innumerable elections. And he stood up and said this, that you know we had fought against each other in innumerable elections. But I'd always been a very fine opponent, and it had all been very clean and proper and above board. And of course, I'd been an excellent speaker as well. And, well, the long and the short of it was that the DUP abstained on their own motion and no confidence and everybody else voted against it. So that was the nearest I got to actually being voted in as Speaker. Um, and I, but I continued on in the role um, for the whole period of that Assembly. Did, did, you, did you then... I'd not appreciated it. It almost happened by, by accident that you were there for so long. But did you, did you aspire to political office then? Was this, was this a, something that you were aiming for, the Speakership, or was it something which happened almost, almost by accident? Well, it... It happened really because um, we had been hoping, I and my colleagues had been hoping, that the structure for the Assembly that we would be able to create in the negotiations would give Alliance uh, a place and a role. Um, But we had been thinking of that in terms of ministerial position or positions in the Assembly. Um, However, we used up a lot of political capital in trying to um, bring both sides together. Uh, I mean, lots of other people were trying that too, but but uh, I suppose we had a particular role and position in that. And so when we stood in the election, um, we got a reasonable enough showing, but it wasn't enough to put us into uh, government, uh, which, as you know, was not a question of negotiation of a coalition. It was a mathematical formula. And so I... Uh, thought about this um, for an hour or two after it became clear what the results were and I thought I'm really not interested in sitting on the back benches um, for the next you know, four or five years which my expectation was that everything would simply go on ahead and so um, I was over here actually in London for an event uh, with a friend uh, a Liberal Democrat friend, Lord Home of Cheltenham and I got a phone call from uh, from the Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And uh, he was talking about how he, he was w- wanting me to be in, in the government. And I said, well, that's all very kind of you, but I can't be because we don't have the numbers. <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's a formula. You know, you've negotiated it. And then he said, well, well, then we have you as speaker. And I said, well, that's very kind. And we had a little bit of a conversation about it. Um, but I said, all that you can actually do is have me as the initial presiding officer because um, that's the structure. It's up to the assembly then. And he said, well, we'll let, let's have you then doing that. And I said, well, okay, that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, when I then thought about it, I thought, you know, I've spent quite a number of years trying to get us to the point where we had an agreement and an assembly. But maybe there's a role to be played in making that assembly work. You know, we can't assume that it will all just gel mm. and that the, the sheer momentum and positivity in the community about the agreement will be sufficient for us to make everything happen. Um, therefore, let's give myself to that and try to work out what are the issues, what are the problems. And I remember Paul Murphy, who at that stage was the Minister for Political Development, coming to me and saying, uh, John, um, and he handed me a little flimsy uh, leaflet and said, um, that's all we have by ways of rules of procedure. Try to make sure it doesn't collapse too quickly. And of course it didn't. We, you know, we, we kept working on it. And then, and then a similar kind of thing emerged for me later on because the Assembly itself functioned not too badly, but the executive kept breaking down over the question of weapons. Mm. And uh, it looked as though the whole thing was going to, to go to pieces. 
When you say the issue, it fell a part of the issue of weapons, specifically, you mean? Well, what, what the, the IRA was was not decommissioning its weapons. It wasn't making any changes. The, the the IRA was still in place. The loyalist paramilitaries weren't decommissioning their weapons, and they were in place. But they weren't going to be in government. Um, Sinn Féin went into government, and the unionists said, well, you know, if, if you're not going to get rid of the weapons and you're not going to get rid of the IRA, then we, we can't continue on a government with you. And, of course, at that stage, the, Sinn Féin wasn't supporting policing and, and so on and so on. And so what happened was that at the point when the whole thing was about to break down, uh, the British and Irish and, indeed, American governments uh, engaged with each other and came up with this idea of an independent monitoring commission that would look independently at what was happening and, and basically tell it like it was because nobody would believe what the governments uh, would say anymore because they felt, well, the governments will say anything that will help the thing politically and, and that won't necessarily be the truth. And so I uh, I thought, well, that's an, a similar kind of situation that the, the agreement is now in danger and maybe there are some things that I can do to help us get through. Uh, simply working as speaker isn't sufficient because um, of this problem with the weapons and the paramilitaries, uh, but maybe I can do something like this. And so I actually stayed as speaker in a suspended assembly for a short time uh, as we set up the Independent Monitoring Commission, and then I resigned as, as, as speaker. And I'd already made it clear that I wasn't going to stand again for election because one of the problems if you are um, a speaker is that you cannot be effective if you take partisan positions mm. and that's not just playing some kind of game you've got to genuinely particularly in the Northern Ireland situation but even even outside of that you, you've got to be able with complete confidence um, ensure that you do not take partisan positions you're simply there for the assembly and for the sake of the assembly and the members have got to believe that but if you're going to do that, you cannot then campaign politically. You can't make political speeches. You can't go around doing all sorts of things that are clearly have a political agenda. Um, now, the way that's dealt with in, in the House of Commons and indeed in the Parliament in Dublin is that whoever is Speaker gets a bye-ball into the next Parliament. You don't effectively stand for election or you stand for election, but nobody stands against you. Um, but that was not the case in, in, in Northern Ireland, and it, and it was clear to me it wasn't going to be the case. So I decided the only way that I could um, behave in a way that was entirely non-partisan and not have any thoughts about that was to simply say, right, I'm not going to stand for election a uh, second time round. And that was fine because uh, I already had a seat in the House of Lords, and I'd, I'd, I'd been in the Lords since before the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and I was very interested also in how we could take the lessons that we had learned about, about communities of people and why they get into intractable violence and so on. And I could do useful work in other parts of the world. So I was you know, able to be quite content with the idea that I would serve you know, one full mandate and then move on. Mm. And that gave me a sort of relief, if you like, from any sense of pressure that I needed to to build my profile or develop myself in constituency and all of those kinds of things that you've got to do to be re-elected. But, but did you have a feel a sense of massive sense of expectation and pressure being the first speaker? As Murphy, Paul Murphy had said, you know, don't break it. His <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had all worked incredibly hard. I mean, everybody, all the parties, two governments, um, lots of other people outside of politics, huge expectations. Uh, in the initial phase, so great were the expectations that... You couldn't imagine it not working. Mm. And then very quickly you realised it would not be difficult to imagine it not working. And so there were there were substantial expectations and you thought, we really, really have to make this work because if this all goes to pieces, um, it could be a very long time before we ever get it back together again. I mean, the, the, the last serious uh, initiative of this kind had been in 73, 74. And it, and it took us right to 1998 to get back into the same kind of situation again. So, oh yeah, there was absolutely a realisation. Uh, and so uh, uh, that was basically all I thought about for the next number of, of months and indeed years, was trying to understand. To any background I had, in, in not just in politics, but in psychology and psychiatry, and trying to understand communities and how they functioned and, and how people responded intellectually and emotionally and how they behaved and how that reflected the community. Anything I could bring to the understanding and, 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 and addressing of those kinds of things, that's really what I focused on all of my time.
And I mean, how long had you been involved in the negotiations leading up to the Good Friday Agreement? And because this was obviously the the product of those, the principal product of those negotiations. Well, I'd been involved way before there were any negotiations because I'd been uh, uh, involved as the leader of the Alliance Party since 1987, um, which is just a couple of years after the the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Um, And indeed, when I came into political uh, office at that stage, um, there was really nothing happening by way of negotiations at all because the unionists had completely walked off the the pitch, as it were, uh, in terms of any negotiations. So the first thing was to try to meet with people and engage with them and, and then gradually work towards the development of a peace process, a talks process, a negotiating process. And so I was involved as the Alliance leader in all of those meetings and conversations over the next 11 years, really. Um, And that became increasingly the focus of all I was thinking and and doing, while at the same time working part-time as a... a Psychiatrist, because that was the only thing I was I was actually getting any income from. Uh, but it was also giving me intellectual income, if you like. It mm. was also helping me to understand how to work with with these individual people, but much more importantly, with with the, with the psychology of the groups of people, which is not quite the same thing as mm. the psychology of individuals. And why did, why did you go into politics in the first place, and why the alliance party as well? Because it's it's obviously less sectarian uh, than, than any of the other parties. So what, what drove you into, into politics mm. in the first place? I think that the, I, I was coming up into my um, teens as things were beginning to break down in the late 1960s. And where was this? Whereabouts? In, 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 in Ballymena. I was, uh, I was living in Ballymena. My father was a, a minister in one of the Presbyterian churches there and I was at school at Ballymena Academy. Were your parents political? My father was interested in politics, but never at all involved in any kind of political party or party politics or any of those kinds of things. He was very interested in communities and people and why they believed what they did and how they did what they did. And he had actually grown up on a farm very near to the border in South Armagh. So he was very much aware of the dynamics of the politics. And um, But... Uh, you know, when we would go off on holidays and he liked to travel, we all liked to travel on holidays, wherever we were, you know, we would go to a local place of worship and it, it might be Protestant, it might be Catholic, it might be Orthodox, you know, whatever, it didn't didn't matter, and or it might be a mosque or, you know, whatever, it, he would be interested and I would be interested. At. One of the great uh, good fortunes of being the son of a Presbyterian minister is that you can argue with the preacher about his sermon over Sunday lunch, which we did. Every week, much to the distress of my poor mother, who you know simply wanted us to have a nice Sunday lunch, but I, you know I would argue back with her. No, it couldn't be that, or what about that? Or, no, I don't agree with that. Arguments about what sort of thing? About what? about theology, about politics, about community affairs, uh, pr- probably about anything. Uh, uh, were you just picking uh, holes in his argument? Was there a no, principle well, there was, disagreement about certain? It it wasn't so. Uh, at the heart of it all, it wasn't so much that we disagreed. It, it was much more a struggle to try to take the thinking forward. So you were growing up in, in, in Northern Ireland, there was this problem of Protestants and Catholics, Unionists and Irishers not getting on together. What, what was that about? Why was that happening historically and politically and, and so on? And, and in some ways we weren't that far apart at all. And he was always, both my parents were hugely supportive of me in, in, in political life. They would ring me up after I did an interview and tell me how well I'd done. So I was really, really supportive. But, but there was this kind of debating engagement that helped you to think through things, which was tremendous later on in life because it meant that before you went to an interview you'd already kind of gone through in your mind, well, what were the kind of questions that were going to be asked? How, how were you going to be tripped up? How was somebody going to ask you something you hadn't thought of before? And many, many of those things, before I came into political life at all, I'd argued with my father about. And and, and his father was a great one for arguing at home as well. It was just a kind of the part of the family culture. But it didn't damage the relationship. In fact, it almost made the relationship more intense. So whether it was about theological issues or whether it was about political issues or whatever, you really struggle and engage with those kinds of things. So I was coming into my teens 
when it was all breaking down and uh, literally breaking down. People were coming out on the streets and I was living in Balamina. There was, a, you know, one of the members of the congregation was just lifted and thrown through the plate glass window of his garage because he was trying to stand out against Ian Paisley's people and they weren't having it. Um, so it was, uh, when you're that age, this kind of thing happening with the civil rights marches every weekend mm. and, the, and the opposition to the marches was both exciting and frightening. It was exciting because there was all this buzz going on. Um, but you knew this was dangerous. And of course, it only got more dangerous as time went on. So uh, I, I, I found myself captured by this question of why our community couldn't find a way of resolving itself. And because my father was a Presbyterian minister, every few weeks there would be people coming, missionaries from other parts of the world, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, rarely from the Middle East, but certainly from India and places like that. And they would be telling us about the socio-economic difficulties of the places that they were living and working in. And I was thinking to myself, you know, these places don't have ongoing terrorist campaigns, and we have, and and whatever, we're not the wealthiest part of the world, and we don't have a perfect democracy, and so on and so on. We're much better off than any of these people in their countries. Mm. And yet they would be saying to us, in, in if you like, religious language, you know, this this whole business in Northern Ireland is a very bad witness because people are saying to us, you know, you're trying to make us Christians, what? So that we can fight like Christians do in Northern Ireland? So, you know, I w- was struggling with this kind of, all these kinds of issues and questions and wanting to see, is there not some way of doing something about that? Because I suppose that's one of the things I, I learned from my parents was when they would be, when he was working as a pastor, when she was working as a, as a pastor or minister's wife, and people were coming with all sorts of difficulties, practical difficulties, spiritual difficulties, family difficulties, health difficulties. The question would always be, what can we do to help? Um, to, 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 to repair situations or relationships or problems to find a way forward. So when I began to be very interested in this, the question was, how do you, how do you fix this problem? Well, and that means, how do you understand it? And the kinds of ideas that were around in political science, all the kind of uh, post-Marxian analysis of post-colonial difficulties and so on, didn't make any kind of sense of the situation we were in at all. And, and the idea that these were, you know, rational actors operating in their best socio-economic and power interests—they weren't behaving rationally. They were devoted to the cause, but they weren't rational in weighing up costs and benefits. Yeah. Everybody was suffering. Everything was getting worse. Nobody was getting better out of it. So, how could I find a way of making sense of all this craziness and engaging with it? And this was in your sort of mid to mid to late teens. This would be this is this was early to early to mid teens. I was born in 1955. Things started to break down in 1967, 68. So you know you're coming into early teens at that point when you're beginning to move beyond thinking about your home and your family and your school and so on. You begin to think of the larger community and get excited about politics. I mean, all young people get interested in these things that are external and uh, and have debates and arguing, arguments about the, the great, great causes. Mm-hmm. And then most people kind of grow out of it and go off and get a job and do something useful. Yeah. Um, I did you see the effects of the, the violence in, in Ballymena? Because everyone knows about, obviously, the focus on Belfast, but in, in Ballymena, how did it feel at that period? Uh, there was not a problem of violence in the same way as there was in parts of Belfast or in South Armagh or in Derry, because the community was very, very largely Protestant. So the only violence, really, that there was in any significant way was when, as part of the overall... Uh, loyalist campaign against the Parshian executive in 1974 or uh, the Constitutional Convention in 75, 76, or, I mean, ultimately, uh, of course, uh, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, although by that stage I'd, I'd moved on. But all that I would really see would be marches of initially men with orange sashes and bowler hats, but then subsequently men with masks and, and khaki jackets and whatnot, um, becoming increasingly moving to be threatening and militant um, and that's really what I saw we, we weren't we weren't living in Belfast um, by the time things started breaking down the valleys but but where my father had been in Belfast before the troubles broke out 
was in East Belfast. I mean, it was his his church was at the bottom of the Newtonards Road, just close to where uh, the, uh, the 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 dividing line came between um, the, the the small. Catholic and indeed Republican community down at the bottom of the Newtonards Road and the rest of the Newtonards Road, which was of course the heart of of the UDA and and, and indeed to some extent UDF. He didn't feel caught up in that as a Presbyterian minister. Um, he uh, was very because he'd grown up in South Armagh. I think he had a great deal of sympathy with the Catholic nationalist community because he was aware of discrimination and uh, a negative attitude to nationalism. And within the church itself, whilst he was very much on the evangelical wing of the church, he had no sympathy at all with fundamentalism. Um, I mean, he knew Ian Paisley very well, but he had absolutely no sympathy with Ian Paisley's approach to things. On the contrary, he thought it was dreadful. Um, and he was deeply unhappy about it, and he didn't have any sympathy with the, the kind of blending of, of, of religious ideas into um, some kind of political machinations. He thought that was completely wrong, and so he was very much opposed to that. Um, uh, and, and I guess that's a, a, a large part of where I was coming from as well in my, in my growing up time. And how did... I mean, you've alluded to it a couple of times about... Um your training as a is it psychiatrist psychotherapist? Yep. Um, I read somewhere. Were you the first c- clinical consultant in psychotherapy in Northern Ireland? Is that yes, I was. Uh, no, no, you're quite right. I mean, there, there are in psychiatry. So to, to be a psychiatrist, you have to qualify in medicine first, and then you go on and train in a whole range of specialisms and subspecialisms within psychiatry, so child psychiatry, adolescent psychiatry, psychiatry of old age, forensic psychiatry. Um, and, and part of that includes a psychological side, and part of it includes a biological side, what, you know, what's going on in your brain, what goes on in the hormones, as well as the question of what goes on, if you like, psychologically. And one of the ways of both understanding and dealing with those kinds of problems is through psychotherapy, whether that's psychoanalysis or family therapy or group analysis or cognitive behavioural therapy or whatever. And so I was attracted to psychiatry and to the psychological aspects of psychiatry because I thought these are people who understand why folk behave in self-destructive ways. Was it, was that I was going to ask, was it, how far are the politics and the psychiatry connected? Very closely. And your interest in both, actually. Very closely, very closely. I, the only two medical specialties that I really seriously considered were uh, public health medicine, which is uh, uh, not so much dealing with individual patients, but why a whole community gets sick in various kinds of ways and what you can do about it. And, and, and psychotherapy, psychoanalytic psychiatry. And I, I quickly set public health medicine aside because if you go into that, you become a civil servant and you can't get involved in politics at all. So I, I quickly set that to the side and focused on how I could understand why people behaved in self-destructive ways as individuals. And then gradually the, the idea began to emerge that if I could do that with individuals, how different would it be for whole communities of people? And that was helped, actually, by working in family therapy because in family therapy, you don't just treat an individual patient. So a young person, maybe a young girl with an eating disorder comes along. I spent a lot of time working with young people with eating disorders. young person with eating disorders comes along. You can rarely satisfactorily deal with that problem if you just focus on the patient themselves. You almost always need to engage with the family. Because often that patient is actually expressing in themselves and their symptoms problems in the relationship of the family as a whole. So when I started thinking about Northern Ireland, I began to think about Northern Ireland as as like one of those patients that you can't understand it and you can't deal with it if you don't understand not just the history and background, like with a patient, but also the other stakeholders, not mother and father, but Britain and Ireland. And indeed the external you know, family setting of, of, of Europe and the United States and so on. So that whole notion of what we would describe as systemic theory, that you're not just dealing with an individual, you're dealing with a system, 
um, was something I very I, I learned at a really quite an early stage in psychiatry because I, I went as part of my training to work in child and adolescent psychiatry and quickly discovered you couldn't you couldn't work with these young people without bringing in the family. So when I then transposed that to politics, systemic theory was 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 a natural, and systemic interventions were also an appropriate way of engaging with it. Mm. So how did you, we started to, to talk about how you got actually involved in, in politics itself. So I'm assuming the studying, uh, becoming a, a psychiatrist and the politics were sort of were running in parallel tracks. You became leader of the Alliance in 87, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So what happened between sort of the late 60s and you becoming the leader of the Alliance in, in 87? Well, I, I, I didn't really get very much involved. In, uh, in fact, I didn't get involved at all in student politics. I, I just didn't think it was real politics. And uh, I focused uh, on, 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 on studying, getting my medical degree, um, get, doing my training in psychiatry, uh, and, and various other kinds of involvements. I worked a lot with young people. I worked a lot with young people in, in churches, and not just within my own Presbyterian church and uniformed organisations and so on, but ecumenically across religious divisions and so on. Um, and, and it was when I was coming much later on in, in my training that I began to think, well, how am I going to apply this then to political life? And I wrote to the various political parties at that stage, not to Sinn Féin, but I wrote to the SDLP, to the Alliance Party, to the Democratic Unionist Party, the Ulster Unionist Party, and I said, OK, well, what do you, what, what's your agenda? What, what do you think about all of this? And they sent me the leaflets, and I had a look at it. And it was very clear to me that uh, the Alliance Party was one that stood for the kinds of principles that, that, that meant something to me. I could identify with that. It was a party that had liberal democratic principles. Um, but also, it had, it seemed to me, a very useful therapeutic context in the sense that it was not clearly identified only with one side or only with the other side, but rather it had the capacity to engage with both sides and most people would see it as a party which felt itself, even if they didn't agree with it, that felt itself to be trying to contribute to a resolution of the problems. And they might not have agreed with it, many of them absolutely didn't, uh, but but they were mostly fairly clear that that's why people got involved in the Alliance Party, particularly in the early days. It was about bringing people from the two sides together, hence the name. Yeah. And so I thought, yeah, that's what I can, I can feel at home in because I believe the kinds of things they believe and in the agenda that I've set for myself, which is to try to understand and engage yeah. to find a better way forward. I think that's the place for me. I think that's right, the right place for me. Other people came to a different conclusion. It was someone like John Hume also wanted to find a resolution of the problem and he was invited before the Alliance Party was formed. He was actually invited. Would he like to join? Um, and uh, and some people from his background did. For example, you know, the two brothers, the, the, the two Hendrons, Joe Hendron and Jim Hendron. Joe uh, joined with John Hume and the others with the SDLP. Jim joined with the Alliance Party. But John decided no. He, he, he would put himself more in the nationalist part of the, of the, of the political uh, gamut and he would work from there and he did and extremely effectively so different people take different ways, ways of, of addressing the problem and how once you were given, given the context of Northern Ireland politics at the time how defining once you were in a party how defining were the, the, those barriers between the, the parties or, or were you all talking to each other and engaging oh no people weren't talking with each other but whenever I got involved uh, and particularly got heavily involved. Um, this was around the time leading up to and immediately after the uh, Anglo-Irish Agreement. And uh, DUP was talking to the Ulster Unionist Party, but they weren't talking to the SDLP, they weren't talking to the Alliance Party, they weren't talking to the British government, they certainly weren't talking to the Irish government, and nobody was talking to Sinn Féin. So at that stage, when I became heavily involved, and I became, first of all, the, the, the vice chairman of the party, and then quite quickly became the leader of the party because circumstances were such that it was very difficult for um, some of my colleagues who were more senior than I to survive um, politically and financially and so on. The assembly, the, the, the assembly Jim Pryor had set up uh, collapsed. Um, I had decided not to get involved with it actually. John Cushnan, um, the previous leader of the party, had come to me when Jim Pryor was setting up the assembly in the early 1980s and said, you know, you, you, you've done very well. I'd stood in a local government election and 
I hadn't got elected, but I'd got a reasonable vote. And he said, you know, why don't you stand for the, the Assembly? And I said, look, John, um, I'm very committed to politics, but I'm committed to politics for the long term. And I don't think this Assembly is going to survive. And, and if I... Uh, and I haven't yet got my medical tickets. You know, I'm still a junior doctor. I haven't qualified and as a specialist and so on. And if I throw all of that to the side and go into the assembly and the assembly collapses, you know, I'm going to be nowhere. Um, and I don't think this assembly is going to survive. I don't think the SDLP are going to come in and I don't think it's going to survive. And that is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, 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 it staggered on for a little while, but it didn't really survive or do anything terribly useful. And... Most of those who stood and were elected for the Alliance Party in that assembly ended up having to go out of politics mm. because um, they gave up their jobs and they weren't able to find new jobs in, in many cases uh, or uh, the jobs they got ruled them out of political life subsequently. So I was very glad that I had taken that decision at that time. Otherwise, I would have been in the same situation as, as they. But, but you kept going with, with the Alliance. I mean, oh, yes. It's, it's very striking. I mean, because the Alliance is sort of seen as the fifth political party, yes. if you like. And as in, in many sort of con- conflict-driven places, it's the extremists who tend to, to attract an awful lot of the vote. Absolutely. You, you were very squeezed in the middle. Oh, yeah. But you... Between that period and then ninety eight, it must have felt like a long, arduous path, especially for the for the alliance. Well, being a psychiatrist is very good training for that. You know, <laughs> if I'd been a surgeon and I'd been trained and I'd had that kind of personality, you know, I'd have wanted to just go in, cut it out, and throw it away and sew it all up again. As a psychiatrist, your whole training is to be aware of the difficulty and the complexity and the relatively weak levers that you have to uh, to create change. Uh, and the patience you need to have, and also the ups and downs. Uh, many years later, I, I, I got to know a, an old friend who'd grown up in Cyprus, another divided island, and, and became a psychiatrist and interested in these issues. And he said, you know, John, a peace process isn't like riding a bicycle. It's more like playing an accordion. You know, you bring them together and they push each other apart, bring them together and push each other apart. It's not just a question of building up as much momentum as you can and driving through the hurdles. And so that kind of background and training was not just something that I chose. I think it really, really helped me to survive uh, through quite difficult times and still take a reasonably constructive approach to things. Mm. I think some of my colleagues were very hurt um, and and... I'd almost say damaged, and I don't just mean people in the Alliance Party, I mean people right across the political spectrum who got involved in political life, and it's a, it's a pretty tough business, you know. I remember we were having a vote in, in, in the Lords on hunting, and uh, of course my Lib Dem colleagues were very much opposed to the continuation of hunting, and, and I was joking with them and saying, well, you know, we could vote this down if you like, but there'll still be one blood sport. And they said, what's that? And I said, politics. <laughs> <laughs> and it is. It's a, it's a tough business. And there's no point in going into it and expecting it to be something else. But in Northern Ireland, it, it, was, it was particularly t- tough. And, and uh, I suppose part of it was that background and training. And also, if you have a, a set of beliefs and principles that... that, that structure your attitude and approach and demeanour that are about playing your part whether you're successful or not you're there to play your part and maybe it will be your generation or maybe it will be the next generation maybe you're just there to keep the candle alight for the next generation to, to, to reap the rewards of it well so be it how widely were those sorts of views shared? But it's not it's not the winning necessarily, it's taking part that matters. Once once the assembly well after the Good Friday Agreement, I was going to ask you about your the, how your training, how you, how that experience of getting to the Good Friday Agreement in the first place and the, the sense you had at the time after yeah. such a given the, the the history of Northern Ireland over the last uh, or the pre- preceding twenty years and, and longer, what it felt like once you got to that agreement, but then also how your everything you've described about your training and your background uh, equipped you to be the person in the chair dealing with you know, Ian Paisley on the one hand and yeah. Martin McGuinness on the other. You oh. probably don't share the views which you've described about, you know, well... Oh, no, indeed, indeed not. My, my most of my <laughs> colleagues didn't share those views either. They, they wanted to be, you know, getting into government and making big changes, completely reasonably. 
it, it, it helped me enormously because as I was going in and sitting there, had I been coming in simply with a political background or simply with a legal background or whatever, I would have been working with my own agenda and what I wanted to achieve and what I wanted to get done and so on. Coming with a psychological perspective, uh, particularly uh, not just an individual one, but, but, but having worked with, with small groups and with families and so on, helped me to listen and observe and see not just what was happening with individuals, but what was happening with the whole group and how did that relate with the external group, society. Um, so, for example, it was very important to ensure that people who are representing robust views of people and communities that have been fighting and trying to kill each other, that if you're going to take them away from that, you've got to provide them with a robust situation in which they can engage. And they've got to be able to engage with powerful emotions. And their people have got to feel that they are really expressing those emotions in a robust way. Otherwise, you know, this politics is no good. It doesn't, it doesn't say what we really think and feel. And yet, you've also got to, to find some kinds of ways in which that those groups of people can do this without the whole thing breaking down into violence. And I can remember, for example, that I was, I was in the chair at, at one point and um, the Secretary of State, who was Momo at that stage, was very unhappy because she knew the DUP were going to use the platform of the Assembly to say all sorts of stuff, which she really didn't want to be said out loud in a way. And, and so I was sitting in the chair and I, I got this note passed to me by the clerk from Secretary of State saying, suspend the Assembly. And I thought, this is a silly idea, and I'm not going to do it. And I bundled it up, and I threw it down. And I allowed it to continue on. Um, and then I got another note from the Secretary. Close the assembly, suspend the assembly. Did the same, threw it away again. And, and eventually, uh, when I reckoned that the DUP and others had had the opportunity to express what they needed to express, mm. uh, I said, oh, I've received this message from the Secretary of State, and she wants us to close the assembly, suspend the assembly, close it down. So I did that, that was fine. And then I went upstairs to the to the dining room. And I always had lunch on my own. I never sat down with any of the party groups because you know it could easily be misunderstood or misinterpreted. And so I always had my lunch on my own. So I was sitting having my lunch on my own in the dining room. And Ian Paisley comes over and he kneels over to me and he says to me, Mr. Speaker, we know what was going on. And we know the Secretary of State instructed you to close the assembly down. And you didn't, and you gave us an opportunity to speak. And we respect and will remember that. And what it was about was understanding that however unwelcome the things that some people would say and do were, you had to give people an opportunity to express those things. Indeed, the whole business of the peace process was not about getting people to agree with each other. It was about enabling people to disagree without killing each other. Mm. So if you didn't provide that alternative... I mean, for example, the whole business of dealing with Sinn Féin and the IRA, we would have got nowhere if we had simply said to the IRA, look, pack it in, you're not going to get a United Ireland, you failed. We got nowhere. What we had to do was say to them, what is it you really want? Mm. And once you began to tease that out... And, and if there was another way of fulfilling that without the use of violence, would you be prepared to think about that? Mm. And if so, how do we get there? You had to take that seriously. So, the, I mean, one of the problems that we had in, in, in Colombia in the last couple of years, we're talking with the government there and with FARC, and, and more particularly after President Santos had stood down and, and President Duque came in, a failure to understand that if FARC and the people who support FARC do not believe that there is an alternative way of addressing their needs and concerns and fears and hurts and angers and so on, other than the use of violence. If you don't give them that opportunity, then the violence is likely to re-emerge. If you give people an opportunity to speak about things and particularly to address the sense of humiliation and disrespect, which both sides of the community in Northern Ireland feel. It's not just one. That's again one of the mistakes people, you know, Big problem we've got in the Middle East with, in the peace process there. I mean, we don't even call it a peace process anymore, but whenever I was working there more energetically a few years ago, between Israelis and Palestinians, both sides felt disrespected. Mm. 
by elements in the international community. And what you had to understand was this the toxic nature of humiliation and disrespect, of feeling treated deeply unfairly, of believing that democracy cannot deliver. And what you have to do is be able to get people to put it into words and begin to think about how, in a non-violent way, it was possible to move forward and address those historic, disturbed relationships. So, so what are those... I was, going to, I was going to come on to the, the international stuff because you stepped down as a speaker in 2004 and have been working internationally yeah. in what, what sort of places since, since then? Uh, in in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in the Balkans, in, 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 in South Asia and uh, in Latin America. Um, really, uh, and, and, and apart from those situations where you've had an active terrorist campaign, I've also, for various reasons, become interested in the intractable nature of the conflict between First Nation people and those who come in and take their territory. So mm-hmm. First Nation people in Aboriginal people in Australia or in North America or in Peru or Nepal or wherever. And what's, I mean, what is, what are the international efforts getting wrong? Um, because you described the, the need, often you, you get the sense that the international community is, is aiming for consensus almost at all costs. Mm-hmm. What you've described is something different, the yep. need to to let out those and acknowledge those very, very fundamental disagreements before you can get to anything approaching an agreement. Yes. I think there are a number of issues which have emerged, um, and despite all the differences that you find in all these different situations, certain things that are constants. I've, I've mentioned the experience of humiliation and disrespect, the question of fairness or lack of fairness, which is not a legal question, by the way. Um, and it's not simply a question of, of, of uh, equality of distribution of goods either. And the fact that democracy or democratic peaceful means have not been able to facilitate a resolution. Every place I've gone where there has been uh, intractable political violence, I've found those three elements. And, and they're, they're absolutely critical to understand. The second thing is, in terms of the context itself, you cannot address these problems at just any, any old time. We find ourselves experiencing the troubles for you know, more than a generation. And of course, there had been previous outbreaks of troubles going back hundreds of years in Ireland. But we came to a point of what some people call a hurting stalemate. I remember working with with Martin McGuinness and one or two other colleagues in Iraq and Martin saying to them, um, you know, we discovered that we couldn't beat the Brits and the Brits couldn't beat us and therefore I had a moral problem, he said. I have a moral problem. I'm sending young people out from my community to be injured and imprisoned and probably killed to no benefit. We're not going to be able to beat the Brits. But they're in the same situation as us. And indeed, uh, senior military officers, general officers commanding and so on, have, have been saying publicly for quite some time, we can hold the ring for whatever length of time. But this is a political problem and it needs a political solution. And so Martin said to these guys from all the different parties in Iraq who were fighting with each other said you guys can continue fighting and killing each other for the next five years or the next 25 years but ultimately you've got a political problem and of course he was absolutely right and and that led us on to other kinds of negotiations and discussions there um, but but the, the key thing is understanding that whatever security and military role there may be in addressing the problem there is no security or military solution to the mm. problem it's a political problem and, 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 and once you get to the point of people realising we're not going to be able to wipe the other side out, we're not going to be able to comprehensively defeat them, then, then people begin to think, is there another way? I mentioned about the business in Iraq, and it, it points up another important thing, because we actually got to the point uh, with a number of other colleagues from South Africa and uh, a friend called Porico Mali who facilitated a lot of this, where we got a signed agreement by all the parties in Iraq to what was effectively an Iraqi version of the Mitchell Principles. But the Americans weren't interested in following up on it. And that's a key thing. We had a situation where 
the British government, the Irish government, the Europeans, the Americans, everybody got to the point of saying, all we want is a peaceful outcome. Mm. Whatever the politics of it, that's all we want. Mm. We may well find that it, it leads to Northern Ireland coming out of the UK or whatever. That may not be our preference, but you know, that's, if that's the price, that's the price. But we've got, that's the issue. We've got to find a way forward. In many of the situations that I go to, I find that they're not just internal actors, but external stakeholders who are not prepared to take that kind of attitude at all. And I, I remember working with, with colleagues in, in Lebanon for a bit, and they said, you know, John, the problem is, it, it's, it's not just a question of whether the, the three groups in Lebanon can get on together. You've got the Syrians, the Israelis, you've got a whole bunch of other people in the region, you've got the Americans, you've got the Russians, everybody playing in, in our space, and actually not necessarily with our interests at heart at all. Mm. They're their own interests at heart, and, and there's a vicarious game going on here. And of course, that was the case right all over the world during the Cold War. You know, somewhere like South Africa was, was partly intractable because it was a pawn a vicarious struggle within the Cold War. Once the Cold War comes to an end, it becomes possible to address South Africa. Now, a problem that we have at the moment is that in lots of these situations where there is intractable conflict, whether it's Kashmir between India and Pakistan, whether it's northern Cyprus between the Greeks and the North, southern Cypriots and the, or Greek Cypriots and the Turks, whatever, if you have external stakeholders who want to continue the struggle, then no matter what you do internally, you, you can't get it. And the, the, the other element which we were really incredibly fortunate, my generation were incredibly fortunate, and that is there was a bit of money around, not mega, but you know we, it, it was not austerity. And the zeitgeist of the time amongst major leaders, you know, Gorbachev, uh, Mitchell and Clinton, de Klerk, Mandela, all of these kinds of people, the zeitgeist was... You are a statesman or stateswoman if you resolve conflict. The zeitgeist now is you're a statesman if you conduct conflict. Mm. It's a very, very different kind of thing. So there were things which were possible for us at that time because we'd got to a hurting stalemate. There were resources. The external stakeholders were prepared to set aside any immediate engagement. And there was a sense, you know, you, people would stop me in the street in Belfast and say, if they can do it in South Africa and at that stage the Oslo process was going on, and they can do it in the Middle East, we must be able to do something. Whereas people now look around and, and they throw up their hands in despair that, that nothing's working any, anywhere and we're, we're sliding into a global conflict. Uh, so it's a very different kind of setting uh, than we have, we're fortunate enough to have. And you still have the, the centre for the uh, resolution of intractable conflicts. Yep. Is your sense, where are you working now, and is your sense of what you... you painted a very depressing picture of the world um, but one that's very recognisable um, where are you working now and are you optimistic pessimistic is this a phase that you think we will come out the other side of or okay. is it going to get worse before it gets better the, the centre which uh, I set up with some colleagues at Oxford is, is doing a series of things first of all uh, the, I, I felt that we had learned things from our experience at home and in other places and I realised that the beard was getting greyer and I was less resilient and bouncy than I used to be. And it was time to hand on to the next generation. And we needed to take that actively. And I looked around and I found very few of the colleagues that had been through the process with me had really analysed it in such a way, not just as to give the history of it, but to tease out what were the things that were relevant lessons about the human condition, about violence and so on and so on. And I thought... We need to do that, and I need to do it in a place where there will be young people who really get it and understand it. So we, 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 we had some friends in Oxford who were keen to help us with this. Second thing was we need to deepen our understanding, so we need to do more research. And that research is everything from functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brains of young people who are thinking about being suicide bombers right through to what happens to large communities of hundreds of thousands of people when their their feelings about things swing massively around not guided by rational de debate and discussion uh, and we, we we developed a network so mo the vast majority of our colleagues aren't at oxford at all some of them are in oxford but they're in all sorts of other countries around the world working in universities trying to get evidence from the field, I mean literally going out and interviewing people who have been involved in all of these kinds of things and, and bringing that information back and, and working together with it. So there's those, those three elements, the handing on, 
the deepening of the understanding and the research component, and also involved when it seems to be worthwhile. We, we did quite a lot on the Colombian situation. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uncertain that the new administration is really serious about carrying it on, but we remain open to be helpful if, if that's the case. Um, similarly, uh, with the Middle East um, peace process, it just there is no peace process at the moment, so you just have to wait and, 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 and do other things and see what happens. Um, so... I, I, you said a, little, a few minutes ago I was painting a quite depressing picture and you're right and I have to say about three years or so I got really very down about things because I thought you know we are heading into another global conflict it's not going to be like World War I and World War II but it's going to be global and it's going to emerge and we now have a fifth space that we did not have to fight in before which is cyber we have Lancy Air and Space but now we have cyberspace and indeed um, I said publicly on a number of occasions that, you know, if, the, if what was happening in cyberspace at the moment was happening in any of the other four spaces, it would be a world war. It would be declared a war. Mm. We don't have quite the same rules in, in cyber. And, and then I began to realise that if we're going to make really serious paradigm shifts, real major pieces of progress as humanity in understanding and engaging, it's not going to happen in situations of stability. In situations of relative stability, you only ever make incremental change. It's when you've got major changes, huge dissatisfactions, um, uh, the sense of you know, there's corruption, there's, there's people are not being listened to, there's deep, deep divisions, um, unhappiness about the establishment, authority, uh, those who have that authority. And at the same time, disruptive technologies emerging. That's exactly what happened 500 years ago with people like Martin Luther. There was all this sense of disenchantment with the hierarchy, the churches, the bishops, the kings, and so on. He comes up with new ideas. The seat of authority needs to move from up there down to the people where they will have the right and responsibility to engage with God and with each other themselves. The disruptive technology, Gutenberg invented the printing press in the 1450s, and Martin Luther translated the Bible into the language of the people, German in, in that case. And I'm sure there were people sitting around saying, oh my goodness, this is dangerous, dangerous to all sorts of people who are saying things and thinking things. I mean, it's incredibly dangerous. And they were right, because it didn't lead to peace. It led to the wars of religion. But none of us look back now and say, oh, I should never have invented printing, you know, did terribly dangerous stuff. We've you know, 20 times more disruptive technologies than that. And we've all this sense of disenchantment. Well, on the one hand, we can look at that and say, oh my goodness, we could blow ourselves apart, and we may well. Or you could say, you know, this may well be the stimulus we need to take our thinking forward, not just a few steps, but a new paradigm, a new way of thinking. We can, for example, I talked about systemic theory. That is moving forward into complexity science, which is giving whole new ways of exploring these kinds of things, which are really potentially very exciting and positive. They're not going to immediately bring peace. On the contrary... But, but the job of people like us, I think, is to take what we've learned and pass it on to the next generation, encouraging them that the future of humanity depends on them being able to pick that up, take the baton and move down the line with it. And that it really is possible to do that. It's risky, it's discouraging, but it's absolutely crucial. And that takes me at least and maybe you too from a position of being quite depressed about the dangers of the moment into becoming quite excited about the possibilities of the future yes well with that glimmer of optimism it's be a perfect place to stop John thank you that was absolutely fascinating you're very welcome thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to that one as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with him. It was one of those conversations that with more time could have gone on for much, much longer. Uh, we will be back in a fortnight's time. Uh, and at the moment, I'm trying to scoop up interviews with various UK politicians that stood down at the last election, all of whom have some direct involvement in international development or foreign policy. As I'm still trying to pin them down, I can't actually confirm who, who they all are at the moment. But I know that the first one will be with Stephen Twigg, who until December was the MP for Liverpool West Derby and Chair of Parliament's International Development Committee. Look out for that. 
And in the meantime, if you like the podcast, please do remember to like and subscribe as it makes it easier for other people to find us. And if you don't like it, why are you still listening? Go away. Bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpcovenants.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online. Thanks for listening.